So one of the things that I was really influenced quite early on in my teaching career, John, it was actually one of your posts. It was the hero's journey, you know, developing that need to learn. I don't know if that's how you phrased it, but that's how I remember it. And it comes to this idea where you essentially, you're sparking something there. And I've heard, you know, you guys talk about this at length and in a really, really good way. But that's essentially what I'm trying to do with a hook, you know, and I guess the word hook speaks for itself in that. You are listening to the Aussie John Rowe. John is a math coach from Adelaide, Australia. He's put together a great resource for you on tasks for the math class, and he's also a Desmos wizard. Listen in as John shares his five-day professional development plan for teachers, why he thinks Twitter is one of the most useful professional development sources, and how to use his hook, line, and sinker framework in your classroom. But before we get to all that, we've got to do something really important. Play that music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Are you ready, John? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But before we dive into our talk with John, we want to thank you for listening to us wherever you are, in the car at the gym, in the kitchen washing dishes, or maybe even on your prep time. If you've listened to us before and enjoyed the episode and got some value out of it, we'd love to hear from you. Right. Stop right now and take a picture of what you're doing while listening. If you're running, take a breather and take a pic of your route. If you're on a hike, take a pic of your view. If you're cutting the lawn, take a pic of your yard. We'd love to see where you are. So send that pic to Twitter at Make Math Moments or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Make Math Moments, or simply email us. We absolutely love it when you share your experience with us, knowing that a couple Canadian boys like us are actually out there helping you make a difference in your classroom. So go ahead, share away. Also, the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you another giveaway, this time with Whitebook, our source for Whitebook flip charts. That's right. You can easily post whiteboards anywhere in your room and easily bring them with you. Whitebook is offering you, the Math Moment Maker community, the chance to win one of five flip chart packs plus a special 50% discount on flip chart packs for everyone who enters the giveaway. You can get in on the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. Listening after Wednesday, August 28th, 2019? No sweat. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about the current giveaways that we are running. There will always be something there for you to enter. Don't miss out. Dive in. Makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. All right, let's jump into our conversation with John. Hey there, John. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today and in particular coming to us from such a far distance. How are things on your end? Pretty good over here, guys. Um, the other side of the world. It's pretty nighttime over here. It's 10 p.m. in little old Adelaide. 
That's pretty awesome that we can chat to you like almost a day away. John, could you help our listeners understand just a little bit about yourself? What's your background? What's your role in education? And maybe like what inspired you to become a math teacher, a math educator? That's a lot of questions in one. I'm sure we'll break it up as we go, but fill us in a little bit about who you are. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm in a really, really lucky position at the moment because I get to spend most of my time working with fellow maths teachers. So I've been out of the classroom for about eight months now. But yeah, so I've essentially replaced my students with teachers, which is, it's a pretty good replacement, a little bit better behaved. Only a little bit, only a little bit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a few more coffee breaks than students like, but you know. <laughs> yeah, so what I do, the core part of my role is I run a five-day professional learning program for teachers in public schools across the states. Sorry, across the state, not the states. But yeah, these are in particular senior maths teachers. So I feel really lucky to be able to work with these people really closely because I don't know about you guys, but as a senior maths teacher, we copped a lot of flack from everyone else in the school. So it's nice to work intimately with these people. And yeah, I really respect what they do and trying to help them find ways to make their classroom, you know, a bit more engaging or uh, help their students get deeper into their maths, not necessarily any more quicker than they were, but definitely more deeper. So yeah, you know, just bringing some of those messages that we see so much on Twitter, but we know that a lot of teachers aren't necessarily engaging in that or don't have time to translate that into their classroom. So I'm essentially a bit of a conduit for a lot of public school teachers in the state that I live in. So the core part of my role is really running professional learning. And when I'm not doing that, I'm planning for it. So yeah. Super cool. Super cool. So you're saying you're running like a five-day professional learning program. Can you help us understand like what does that look like, sound like? So if I was, let's say, a teacher in the state and you were coming in and I was going to be involved with you, like how do I become involved with John and what does that look like or sound like for me? Yeah. So because I work in the Department for Education, you know, we serve all the teachers and especially the students of anyone that goes to a public school. So What we do, we get these teachers in about a group of 30. We provide them full, we call it TRT, but it's um, like substitute teacher funding. So we pay for them to be out of school for five full days. And that happens over a semester. So for us, that's about 20 weeks, so two terms. And we would do it maybe once at the start of term one, if we go for the first semester. And then we have a bit of a break, you know, maybe a month. And then we do that five times. Each day we focus on a particular topic but really what we're focusing on is you know the key ideas behind it so for instance day one we focus on quadratics and really us as presenters we are just focusing on understanding the pressure points for these teachers and trying to make them feel respected while also bringing in some new things so we focus on on day one we've got quadratics or parabolas for you guys and yeah we bring in things like you know dan myers will it hit the hoop on desmos We also do the polygraph activity and, you know, we'll try to use stuff that we, myself and my co-presenter have used in our own classroom. So we're talking from experience. Yeah, it's really important if you can do that. You know, it's not always possible, but yeah. So really we're investing a whole heap of department money, which is nice on these teachers to make them feel supported, but also trying to give them something actually useful from people who have 
actually been in their position. That's uh, really interesting. I was curious when you did save a five-day program, I was curious if it would be like all in one week or would it be spread out throughout the year? Like my district, uh, we tend to pull teachers out and we have it sort of spread out throughout the year and we do, you know, groups that are spread out. But I wonder about kind of almost like doing like, you know, we'll call it a boot camp, hopefully not as like, mm, you know, mm. violent or, uh, you know, you're, <laughs> you're hopefully not uh, making yeah. them sweat too hard. Yeah. But, hey, you know, you're kind of coming mean, out. Right. <laughs> yeah, you got the whip in the back if you need it, right? <laughs> you know, just to give them this, like, it's almost like a total immersion, right? Instead of maybe just sort of hitting at it little bits here and there, it's like you're immersing them for five full days, like to try to almost have this maybe transformative sort of experience. Like, how do you feel teachers are in terms of how they take to that model? Do you find, you know, like by Friday, are people just like, oh my gosh, like mind blown? Or, you know, is it a little bit of a mix? What's your perspective on that? I think, you know, you go to a conference. I went to NCTM last year and no matter what, you know, I was enthusiastic. I travel around I traveled to the other side of the world for this and I was still knackered by the end of, you know, the, uh, was it three days or four days? I can't see. I can't even remember if it was three or four days. It was just, I was so inspired. I took so much away, but my mind was constantly occupied on going, all right, store this, you know, store this. How can I write this down for future John? And I spent so much energy on worrying about forgetting about something, you know, worrying about going, oh, this is great now, but man, I'm just going to, I don't have room for this. I had an epic Google Doc going, but I was really concerned. Really, I think teachers will take whatever is going, you know, if there's something and they know it's going to be meaningful for them, they'll make it work. So whether it's five days in a row or five days over a semester, I think they'll benefit from it and I think they'll take it. But um, if you had a five-day program and you got a four-day program, I wonder if there's a huge difference between that. And then you could then argue, well, what about three? And then you start going, well, why don't we just spread this out, give a bit of time for implementation so that way we can provide some, some ongoing support, maybe some emails to and fro, a couple of phone calls in between sessions and really just try to go deep and let them know that we're there for those five days, but then after that as well, you know? Yeah, it's a struggle, right? Like, I don't know if we'll ever land on this like perfect model or like a one size fits all. I think it really does depend on, you know, obviously your own district, the teachers you're working with, and even just the conditions throughout. You know, something that you said there that I think is really important is that this idea, like, I think the hardest part for us is to help people see the why and making that really clear, like to help people have that epiphany and to have that sort of like the light bulb to go off in their mind to say that what I'm experiencing right now makes sense and that I want to actually go do that and act on that instead of it being something like sometimes, you know, if, if it's not delivered well, and this happens to us sometimes, you know, where we just feel like we just didn't come across the way we were hoping to, people kind of walk away and, you know, they're like, am I doing this because someone told me to do it? Or is it, am I doing it because I know it's the right thing to do, or at least I believe it to be the most effective way for me to move forward, right? I don't think even teachers who tend to maybe sort of push 
professional learning away a little bit. Like, I don't think they're doing it just to be hard or difficult. It's because clearly their beliefs, like we haven't been able to shift what they believe to be the most effective way to go about it. So that means that's kind of like on us, right? We've got to go back and do our homework and say, all right, well, you know, that didn't work. How are we going to reframe this a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I guess a a goal of mine is to shift teachers from using but and replacing that with so. So whenever they're saying something, they're going, all right, yeah, I really like this task or I really like, let's take the five practices is a classic one, right? So I bring in the five practices. That's something I brought home from the States with me. And I'm like, look, guys, anyway, so um, (laughs) talking to them about anticipating and they're like, yeah, that's fantastic. So we're talking about anticipating. We agree that it's such an important phase of this process. And teachers will say, yeah, I really like it. But what about if I'm going class to class? Or can I do that for all of my classes? So what I want to do is I want to shift teachers from using the word but to the word so. Because when you use that so, you are so much more active about making that work. So if you go, all right, I'm really passionate about this anticipating process. So what I'm going to do is build time into my day. What I'm going to do is only do it for one class. So that means I probably need to do something else. You know, it implies that you're going to do something about it instead of just using it as an excuse, you know, and I get that we're all so busy, but, you know, (laughs) I'm doing it myself, you know. Um, so, so we need to actually do something about it, you right. know, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. And whether it's one small thing, it's something. Right. It's such a huge thing, but a small, like a small change in word can have a huge impact on just your mindset. So it's kind of like, instead of saying, but just say so and said, I love that. I think that's huge for us and teachers. John, I'm wondering, I'm always curious about this, and I'm sure that some of our listeners are the listeners from, say, the North America side, is that we have Canada, United States, we have pretty much the same school year system. But I know that it's a little different over on your side of the world in terms of like when your school year starts and how you have breaks. I just wanted to kind of deviate from our conversation a little bit before we even dive in deeper. Could you fill us in on what that looks like? Because I think people would be curious about that. Yep, yep. So we get like our summer break is big lucky guys. So if you use that as a bit of a reference point, our summer's at a different time. So where we're at, we start our school year. Our school year runs like the calendar year. So we um, start in January and we end in December. We've got four terms typically of about 10 weeks. So then we have two week vacation break between each term. Most schools would operate, you know, they might swap classes at semester break. So what I mean by that is that's between terms two and three. But yeah, apart from that, the other big difference, and I don't know if it's the same with you guys, I don't know heaps about the North American, uh, you know, the educational differences, but I know in the States, you know, you teach algebra one, algebra two, geometry. Is it same in Canada or is it different? I think what you're referring to is like we have different courses and our high school courses are more integrated than, let's say, the U.S. courses. For example, our grade nine program would have bits of algebra and geometry in it. And that was the same for you? Yeah. So we're, it's mixed at all times. So when you get right up to year 12, which is our final year, so kids are about 18 years old, 17, 18 in that year. 
yeah, it's all mixed still. So that's one of the... That's the same as us. The grade nine was just an example, but yeah, like our grade 10, same thing, grade 11. And we get into after grade 11, when, you know, in grade 11, grade 12, it starts to branch off that we have, ours would be advanced functions here in Ontario, which is kind of like the pre-calculus course. And then we have calculus and vectors all in one course, which is kind of crazy. You know, another grade 12 course would be a statistics course, which we call data management here in Ontario. And another grade 12, or those are the three grade 12 kind of university bound courses. And then we have a variety of other ones for college level or workplace courses. So yeah, it sounds similar. Yeah, you know, the states, they have all algebra and then all geometry kind of like grade those earlier grades. So yeah, something I find interesting in the US as well, like common core states, or at least from how I understand it is that the common core standards are there, but then different districts can sort of decide how they want to like mix them up. So I find that to be interesting. Whereas like here in Ontario, in our province that John and I live in, we have essentially like courses that we have an Ontario curriculum. So it's not like a Canadian curriculum. It's like our province has its own curriculum. And then from there, the province, the Ministry of Education actually says like what courses there are. So it's like you can teach the grade nine academic course, you could teach the grade nine applied course, but it's not like you get to at the district level decide where the standards go and mix and choose them. At least this is my understanding of how things work in the US in some places, right? So yeah, I find that really interesting now that we've had this opportunity to connect with other educators like yourself from like different parts of the US and now obviously all the way over to Australia. I find it really interesting so that, you know, we can at least be reflective on like what's going on locally for us. And, you know, are there better ways or like what differences can we pull from this area? And, you know, what things would we want to keep? Because, you know, we're not sure we like this thing over here, but just to try to kind of get to the best opportunity we have for kids for sure. Now, this being the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, we have to ask you this question. We would love to know if you think back to your education as a student. It also could be as a teacher. We want to know what's your memorable moment from math class. So when we think, you know, say math class and you imagine like your history as a in your whole math education experience from your kid to an adult, what's like sticking out to you as something that's always going to stick with you when we say that? Uh, what would be your memorable moment from math class? Hey, math moment makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. 
I had a bit of time to think about this and (laughs) it's funny because when I think about maths class, I had the most fun in maths class because a lot of the time I wasn't doing maths. I was joking around with my mates. I was doing the absolute minimum so I could maintain this appearance that things came really easy to me. You know, John does so well on those tests and he does no work in class, you know. So it was this kind of almost like a reputation I was upholding at the school um, my older brother was a few years ahead of me. He was good. He was actually starting to, at uni, he was becoming a maths teacher. And I was like, oh, so it wasn't until about year 12, so my final year at school. And this is sadly my most memorable mathematical maths moment. Um, we were finishing off this exercise as a class and it came to rounding off the answer. And it was something like 0.45. And I said to my teacher, well, 0.45, you know, if we're rounding to a whole number, doesn't that round up to one? And he's like, nope, nope, it doesn't. It rounds off to zero. And I'm like, well, if you start 0.45, okay, I'm going to round that off. So the 0.4 rounds up to a (laughs) 0.5 and then the 0.5 rounds to a one. And then I was being totally serious, right? right? I had this misconception. And he goes, nope, (laughs) nope. It's zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's zero. And I was like, why? And he goes, it's zero. You know, it's because you only look at that next digit. And I said, why would you do that? Why would you, you've got so many digits there to right. look at. You know, like that doesn't make any sense. And maths to me, man, I was so used to being so precise. Like I would press the answer button on my calculator if I could to carry that answer. You know, I was so hung up on this and it wasn't until I got home and I asked my older brother who was you know studying maths teaching he goes well 0.45 that's closer to zero than one and I'm like oh yeah it is why couldn't my teacher (laughs) tell me that you know and it's like so I don't want to be one of those people that says oh I wanted to be a maths teacher because I had a bad one it wasn't that at all but it was just man I want to be able to not necessarily answer those every why question, but at least spend a bit of time talking about it. You know, spend a bit of time exploring that if a kid comes up with it. Yeah, that's such an interesting concept because that does come up with me in my classes at the grade nine level all the time. It's kids do make that same kind of assumption. It's like, well, if I'd line around that one up, this one becomes this and this one then becomes this. Like, yeah, like I like your your brother's explanation, you know, and this is one of the explanations I use with those students is that, yeah, like if you look at 45 or 0.45, is that closer to zero or is that closer? closer to one and it's closer to zero. But the, you know, the interesting thing about, especially with zero is like, I I just had this thought right now. Like if you're going to round when you're looking at that small right now, (laughs) it's like, do I have something or do I have nothing? (laughs) <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I think I have something right now. So it's like it, now it's like this philosophical discussion is like, do I have something or nothing? I have something, but uh, I'm going to say yeah. I have nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. you're like, why are you even yeah. rounding anyway? This yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> Let's just leave it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, so it's I, it's funny. You know, you just sort of like even just with this idea of like, you know, which is it closer to, you know, I'm thinking about in our district, we're really, really trying to hone in on tools and representations, right? And really getting to help all of us. And I always include myself in that category because I didn't use things like number lines nearly enough. And I'm sure, John, you probably would agree coming from that secondary side where there was so much 
sort of like, we're going to call it like built-in automaticity that we had, but it wasn't really automaticity. It was just memorization. Like, so, you know, you hear it through your teacher's response. And first of all, I love how the lack of passion in the response of just like, <laughs> nope, you know, like that to me, oh, is, you know, says something as well. But that teacher, for all we know, probably couldn't actually articulate why, because he probably didn't actually have like a visual in his mind of like maybe a number line from zero to one and go ahead and just like, how easy would that have been and for him to say, okay, like, here's a number line from zero to one, like, put it on the number line, like, where would it go? And as soon as you do, you'd be like, Oh, I got that, right. So to me, that's pretty telling anyway. Yeah, that burnt in me as well, you know, like, Oh, yeah, I was just like, I wouldn't let this thing go. And uh yeah, that's the memorable math moment for me, as impressive or unimpressive that is. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because when you think about that, I think back to those students, and I'm putting you in this category of those students who want to get to the answer. Like, those are the kids that we should be wanting in our classroom, right? Like, you're basically the kid who always wants to know why. And that's exactly what we want. We want kids to be curious about the why. And we want to have interesting discussions. And I look at that as such a great learning opportunity now. I never used to. I would have probably been like, just like your teacher early on going like, why are you ragging me here, kid? You know, what are you doing here? Are you trying to be smart? Or what are you doing? And now I look at it as like, how do I help more kids ask those types of questions? Because that's where you start to see those light bulbs going off all around the room. Yeah, right. And when I started teaching, I would get nervous if a kid asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to or know how I could explain it in a clear way. I'd get nervous, you know. And it takes some time to start accepting that, all right, you don't need everything straight away. You know, not everything is a quick draw answer, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you know what, John, we want to shift gears just slightly here. We really appreciate you sharing that memorable moment. Now, for some people, they might be wondering, okay, so John's on the other side of the world. Like, where did Kyle and John run into this gentleman, this fine fellow? (laughs) And the reality is we've never actually met you before. We actually have sort of seen what you've been up to on Twitter. So for those, you had already mentioned it earlier, you know, that even in your PD sessions, you would kind of take things that you're seeing from conferences or from Twitter, especially seems to be like this great spot for us to go and find really interesting things going on in the math education world. In particular, you're a very active member of the MTBOS or the MITBOS, some people call it. So for those listening at home, the hashtag MTBOS is a really, really cool hashtag to check out with all kinds of really interesting math ideas, reflections. And I notice that you're often sharing ideas and retweeting ideas and reflecting. And it took us a while to realize, but like at the time, I thought you were just probably in the US somewhere. We just saw you going through our feed. And sometimes it's hard for us to forget that the internet has no boundaries, right? Like I thought it was really cool to connect with people on different parts of Ontario or different parts of Canada or even the US. But when you start to like routinely see tweets and interact with tweets with someone and then you actually click on their profile and you see where they're from and you go, oh my gosh, they're on the (laughs) world. I'm wondering what got you into Twitter and like that whole world. And I think you probably agree. It's like once you get in, it's like you can't get out, right? It's just pretty, uh, pretty addictive to see.
Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Yeah, so I, look, I started a Twitter account a while back and I think it was just to check out, I don't know, someone, maybe a sports player or something, they said something controversial, I wanted to check it out and I needed a Twitter account. Anyway, I think a lot of teachers do this, they'll start it up or they might start it up at a conference and then they will not touch it for a year or so. I got back onto my Twitter account, I was at a actually a local conference here. And a friend of mine, Amy Albrecht, she's online on Twitter as uh, nomad underscore penguin, I think. She puts out a lot of great stuff. But yeah, so she had just come back from NCTM. And this is a few years ago now. And she brought me back all of this just Moot Boss merch, you know. It was, um, there was like an Estimation 180 sticker, Estimation 180 pencil. There was a Which One Doesn't Belong sticker from Mary. And like all this stuff. And I think there was, there might have been a Desmos sticker as well. But I was just like, oh, and it just, the penny dropped. I was a little bit active on Twitter, but I was like, wow, she's actually gone over there and, you know, interacted with these people that actually exist. You know, for us in Adelaide, we go, we don't think, oh, everyone, when I see someone online, I'm like, I assume they're from somewhere in North America or England. You know, we just go, and then, because you only interact with these people online, they almost don't seem real in a way. And then when I went over, it sounds bizarre, but for us, you know, we can feel remote at some times. But yeah, when I went over there and, you know, I started meeting some people and I, I reckon you guys might have even been in Washington when I was there in NCTM or maybe not. But, you know, you start meeting these people and they go, yeah, everyone's just, yeah, these are just other maths teachers. So when I realized that, I probably did become a lot more active on Twitter because I realized that these people are there for the same reasons as well. If I reach out to them, they'll probably respond. And if they reach out to me, I better respond as well. You know, it's a community on there and it's, it's just so nice. I couldn't imagine not being online there now. I think I'd be cutting off so much. And also, it's enjoyable. I'm not there because I have to be. Right. That echoes my experience as well. And I can't even remember when I got my Twitter account, but I, I imagined my first time getting my Twitter account was so that I could share the homework questions with my students. It was like, oh, kids are on Twitter. I'm going to tweet the homework every night. And then that's going to be like, hey, no excuses, kids. Homework is there. You missed class today. Yeah, exactly. And like, uh, you know, this is maybe going back to 2008, 2009. And and yeah, I was like, you, yeah. I had put it away, you know, and I never really stuck to it until I think it was you, Kyle. I'm not sure. I think that time that we hooked up at a session in my district and I think I was like, oh, maybe I should get back into this. And I look at it and then I start following Dan Meyer and a couple other people. And, and you're right. And it was like, I'm following these people and they're sharing things and then you see them as superhuman. And then when you meet them or you interact with them online, you're like, oh, you're just teachers just like us. And you're right. And it's addictive, powerful because you're like, oh, we all are here together to just get better. 
and then from there it blossomed. So that's exactly my experience. And I think you know, people listening right now, that's like, that's the experience. Like we're all just people here trying to get better. And there's so many resources being shared on that hashtag, you know, the math, Twitter, blogosphere hashtag and lots of others. It's so such a rewarding experience to get new ideas from people who are doing the exact same thing you are. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Kyle, how did you get into Twitter? I'm just now curious. I'm like going back and trying to remember. And I actually, while you were talking and you said, I'm not even sure when I got on, I know that if you click on a profile, you can actually see when they join, right? So I went back. Yeah, and I can see that I joined May 2011, (laughs) and I'm trying to figure out why that was, but I'm guessing probably it was, I've referenced it a number of times on the podcast, but that first conference I went to, the OAME conference, my thinking is, and I don't remember which session it would have been, it was probably just the conference in general, like talking about this whole idea of like a hashtag and You know, I remember that being so mind bending on like, what is going on? And maybe there's some people listening right now thinking like, I don't know what a hashtag is. We actually have an episode. I want to say it's episode 15 or something where we kind of go through some of the Twitter ins and outs during our conference companion episode. So if you're not sure what's going on with Twitter, make sure to check out episode 15. But for me, since then, it was like, initially, I remember this first stage of like overwhelm where, you know, you see your feed, right? And you start following people. And then like you, you know, I would see like, oh, you know, and then it would suggest other people. And I started following a lot of people. And my feed was just like, it was like, I couldn't keep up with it. And then I realized that you're not (laughs) supposed to read everything that's on Twitter. (laughs) You know, like there's, there's, it's like being in the room with everyone all at the same time. And it's like, of course, that's realistic in real life. Why am I putting this pressure on myself? And, you know, so now I do the five minute little scroll. Sometimes I'll go down the rabbit hole, right? So someone shares something and then, you know, you click on that, you follow that feed and, you know, but you can't put that pressure on yourself to sort of like read everything. And I think that to me was something I wish I would have figured out maybe a little sooner, but that was kind of my start. And just like you folks now, like, I just love that, I know that if I have a question, there's people out there willing to answer. And the coolest part is when you put it out and it's like someone out of nowhere comes and responds and you're like, I don't, I didn't even, (laughs) you probably by chance saw this tweet and you were willing to just throw 140 characters back and say your thoughts or fire a link or whatever. It's like everybody is scratching each other's back, like regardless of whether you are quote unquote friends or not, you're just trying to help the community. Yeah. Yeah. John, we know that you have a resource, Hook, Line, and Sinker out there, your ebook, and uh, we're pretty impressed with it. And we would love for you to take a moment here and share that resource with our listeners. Like, what is it? What motivated you to write this resource for teachers? And maybe like outline what the three parts mean and and how they relate to math education. Look, so time is something that everyone complains about, right? When I say everyone, teachers, you know, um, if you ask them how they're going or whatever, you can ask them any question, actually, like what's the weather today? They'll probably mention time. They'll find some way to squeeze in a complaint or something about time and how it just controls and determines so much. So I came into this job uh, towards the end of the school year. And when I went into this job, I had to sacrifice my teacher condition. So it meant that I didn't get school holidays or school vacation anymore. 
So it was just before we went into summer. So I was going into my first summer break without actually having any holidays. And while everyone else was on holidays, I was at work and I had lots of time. So I would be going in working nine to five at a desk. And, you know, I'm not presenting any professional learning because everyone else is, you know, on break. So I thought, well, I've got to do something with this. And a colleague of mine was talking about how she's just discovered this resource that she uses with her junior primary kids. It's called Book Creator. So I was checking out Book Creator and I was just like, okay, well, if I throw these things around, oh, you can put like a background as a grid. That's kind of cool. And I was just playing around with it. And I was like, well, I wonder what a unit of work would look like on this. And I did that and I'm like, oh, you can put links in. And I kind of just started putting this ebook together by almost by accident. So I was like, okay, I've only taught at two schools. One of them is a, a specialist math science school, and that's only from year 10 to 12. The second school I taught at was a high school in a low SES area. I don't know if you guys use that word, SES. It's like a socioeconomic status. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that's new for us. It was, yeah, like an existing, like, so each one of our public schools has a SES rating. It's the term, it tells us like uh, how disadvantaged that community is. And yeah, this school in particular is low SES, so a really challenging community. And they're from year eight to 12. So I'd never actually taught eight or nine. What I'm getting at here is that my resource bank was really much more like a drawer of odd socks. You know, there were just things all over the place. Everything, you know, I, I just happened to, I felt like I taught something different every year, you know. So I just had these things and I thought, well, if I was putting a unit together, and it doesn't necessarily matter for which year level, like could I kind of combine some of these things in a way? And I started doing that and I realized that a lot of the stuff I'd used or saved you know, I might have a PowerPoint presentation and it would be like a three-act lesson, but it would be from, you know, Andrew Stadel or Dan Meyer. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't make an ebook about everyone else's stuff, you know. <laughs> that's just dodgy. So, and I wasn't out there to make money as well. I'm also a department employee, so I'm working on their clock. And, you know, if I did try to sell it, it would never work anyway. And it wasn't my intention. So, yeah, anyway, I started putting these little units together and I actually showed it to someone who was popping in while they're on holidays. And she said, yeah, this is really good. This would be really useful. She's a science teacher. And she goes, I don't have this experience. I don't have this resource. I haven't even heard of some of these people. So I didn't want it to be overwhelming. And I really, really tried to keep it as a, almost tried to maintain this minimalist appearance. So it's a very simple looking book. If you go onto it, it's, you know, there's these, just these boxes with links and even the framework, hook, line, sinker, it's an adaption of a lot of other existing models there. I think the example I've included in the book is like the five E's or something. So I think it's um, engage, explore, explain, elaborate, evaluate or something. But I'm not necessarily saying that I'm bringing anything revolutionary in this book, but it's just there wasn't really anything like that. So I just tried to, you know, feel that need. There are a lot of great resource websites out there, like really, really fantastic ones, ones that are laid out really nicely. And they're good if you know about it. And they're also not the answer to everything. And I don't think anything will be. So I just tried to create almost like a starter pack for someone who isn't or doesn't feel like they have the time to be really active online. 
to actually keep across everything. And I've just tried to, you know, include stuff that I use, the example units or whatever you want to call them that are in the book are just one example. There are some tasks that I might have like in a sinker spot, which you could totally use as a hook or a line. You know, there's, it's just the starting point so that when you're at the end of your day and you've been teaching seven lessons or whatever, and you're going, what am I going to do tomorrow? And you just, you don't have the capacity to think for yourself. You just literally want to look at someone else's book or someone else's plan. There's not a whole lot of people to go out and get that information from, especially if you're not in a faculty that's conducive to that. And then there are some other things. You know, I guess one of my favorite pages is the page at the back. I've classified it under big catches, just to <laughs> stay with the analogy. <laughs> but these are things that I'm going, yeah, this is like my trophy cabinet of amazing maths things I've found, right? So you guys are in there. And I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, how did I come up with this order? I'm pretty sure it's just totally random because you guys would be at number one, not number five on the list, the Make Maths Moments That Matter podcast. But, you know, there are some other podcasts in there. There are some a newsletter to sign up. There's J. Chow's Desmos tasks. There are just all a range of different things. And what I encourage people to do is if they use someone's stuff, I don't like this idea of, oh, man, I'm going to steal that person's idea. It's not, I mean, it can be stealing, but why steal? You know, use it. Let them know you've used it because how are they to know? They might want your feedback, you know. I am amazed when people will use one of my tasks or something and they might take a photo of it and then post it online. And I'm like, wow, that must have been a really good thing. You know, that must, unless if it's a complaint. But yeah, that must have been, you know, really quite nice for them. And getting that, you know, just randomly come through that's huge for me. People don't know how much that can mean when you see other kids doing something that you've created and a teacher's gone, yeah, I respect this. I'm going to use it and it's going to benefit my students. I look at it too, like when you were saying, like when people share out on Twitter, for example, like it does make you feel like it was worthwhile even putting it out there in the first place, right? Like I know when I see a teacher using it in the class and you see like a smile on the kid's face or, you know, they send a video and the kids are cheering after the third <laughs> act of a video goes or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be. It just sort of gives you that little bit of fuel to like do the next one, right? Because you're like, yeah, people are actually using this. There's like, you know, obviously you're doing it for your own students. But at the same time, it's like it does take people a long time to go ahead and then take it and put it online in some sort of consumable content. And, you know, I'm sure you feel the same way when people are sharing out that they're finding this resource useful hook, line and sinker because, you know, you didn't have to put all this together. And the thing I like about it, I mean, there's lots of things we like about it, but one thing in particular, and you sort of named it was what ends up happening very quickly. If let's say I've created something, it's really easy for me to go and like slap it on a blog. But the problem is, is like blogs, if I'm not really sure how to like keep things organized, it's like, you know, sure, there's these things we call tags or categories, but does everyone understand how to use those or like where to go to find them on everyone's site? Or, you know, some people put them into, let's say, spreadsheets like Google Spreadsheets and share them, which nice and organized, but man, is it hard to find that link if you lose it, right? So, you know, there's all kinds of pros and cons to each of the different ways that people are sharing. And this is just one of those other ways where, you know, I'm picturing a teacher sitting in your five-day workshop series 
and you can hand this off to them and they can go and just tuck this onto any device they want. I know it's an iBooks. I know that you've got the EPUB file so they could just download it on an Android or whatever they want. Pretty cool stuff. So I'm wondering if we could like dig a little deeper. You had mentioned the big catch or the, yeah, the big catches part at the back. And John and I are honored, obviously, that you've included some of our things in there. Is there anything like maybe you can help us out with like, what do you look at? And I guess when you categorized hook, line, sinker, like what are your thinking? Like what were your thoughts behind those three? I think it's super catchy. I think it's really cool that you came up with that whole context. But can you help people understand like what they might find under a hook and what they might find under a line and a sinker? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I was really influenced quite early on in my teaching career, John, it was actually one of your posts. It was the hero's journey, you know, developing that need to learn. I don't know if that's how you phrased it, but that's how I remember it. And it comes to this idea where you essentially, you're sparking something there. And I've heard, you know, you guys talk about this at length and in a really, really good way. But that's essentially what I'm trying to do with a hook, you know, and I guess the word hook speaks for itself in that. But what we really want to do is if you have those students, it's about getting them in. It might be your hook might be because of what you previously used for a sinker task. So maybe it links really well with what you've just done. And it as a task, you know, a standalone task, you go, how would that be a hook? But when it's put into that context, you go, oh, yeah, right. So that next kind of level. Once we've got the students, you know, hooked and maybe it's, you know, you're causing some cognitive conflict that you're causing them to really, I guess for us as teachers, we're trying to scrunch those eyebrows. You know, you really want to get those kids in a state where they are thinking. And so the line is where we almost address that. So it might be another task where it could be a three-act task, for instance, where maybe teaching some skills through it. A good example of this is probably... If you were to hop on and have a look at the egg roulette task, that's how I teach tree diagrams, right? So we have a way of establishing and some sort of representation for probabilities and how uh, conditional probability works. So I would be like, okay, yep, we picked up these new skills, all right? And then that sinker task is something that you can do to consolidate that learning. That's something that I probably didn't do so well in my first few years of teaching. I was doing, you know, three-act lessons every time. And my kids were loving it. The results were really good as well. So, but there was still this part of me that was like, man, it wasn't that they just weren't doing worksheets, but it, I just felt like they weren't spending enough time just, I don't know, I guess consolidating or I didn't, I just didn't feel like they were, oh, for lack of a better term, doing enough math, you know? Right. Like actual problem solving. It's like we investigated through the three-act math task and you talked about what strategies this might look like or how we could do that strategy. But then, yeah, like, do you just turn to a worksheet after that? Or how do you continue to problem solve and get your immerse your students in that problem solving process so they can practice the skills? Yeah. So my sinkers are essentially worksheet replaces. And that's what I'll say in my professional learning that I run, I'm like, look, this will replace a worksheet. It may not replace all your worksheets. You might not replace all those exercises you do in your textbook, but it will replace one of those things. You know, people have different words for this. Might call it purposeful practice or productive practice. I get those two things mixed up a fair bit. And some people would probably get angry at me for that. But you know, an example might be like, a, are you seeing that trigonometry pile-up or Pythagoras pile-up? Well, you know, where students are doing multiple things, but there's that bigger thing in mind. You know, they're doing what would be equivalent of a pretty stale worksheet, 
but it's different and the kids know it's different and they respect that it's different. Yeah, there's you know, like that challenge element skills, built in, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's the essence of those sinker tasks is something to give the kids a bit of space to give their new learning a bit of a workout. And for sometimes it might be, all right, we might be able to strengthen this from connecting it to something we already know. So sometimes the sinker is, all right, well, let's go for one of those connections across maybe a different topic and really strengthen it. A good example of this is Pythagoras theorem and equations of circles, right? So we go, all right, now let's generalize to that and go, yeah, there's a bigger picture here. There's something else going on. And that might be how it's consolidated. I really like the term sinker too. You've given some great tips and examples on how we can practice or make that purposeful practice. I think that's something that we're not doing enough as teachers and we need to make more conscious effort too. And and that's something that we also have talked about here on the podcast about the consolidation piece too. Like sometimes we miss that part. We focus a lot on engagement, but not on the next part after that. I'm wondering a little bit, like, what other resources are you really passionate about right now? Like, what are you geeked about lately? What's like your next or what have you been working on? What's your like, got you going right now? Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that and share a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's two big things for me this year that have really shifted my thinking again. One of them was a book I read um, by John Mason. I think it's Leonie Burson. And Kay Stacy, Thinking Mathematically. It's one of these books that has been recommended to me by so many people. But now that I've actually got time, I sunk my teeth into it. And it's just this idea that students, if they're conjecturing, they're doing maths. You know, if they're you're zigzagging between conjecturing, disproving their own conjecture, conjecturing again, and they just go through this cycle where they're coming up with their own, they're coming up with their own mathematics, really. And we're, you know, developing this culture where, all right, let's make a prediction. Let's test that out. There was this really lovely quote that came up from George Pollier, which was just years and years ago, which is a test your guess. It's the difference between a savage and a scientist. And I'm like, in essence, that's nice because we don't want the blind guessing. We don't want these conjectures coming out of nothing, but we want them to feel as though they need to be testing that. So that kind of made me reevaluate my whole practice and go, wow, how much of my time was actually spent doing this? Because I know I spend a lot of energy getting kids doing cool looking tasks and, you know, nice shiny tasks. And that was great. But that was a big kind of little tipping point for me. The other thing is that um, over the past year or so, I've upskilled my computation layer ability on Desmos, as we pronounce, we in Australia, we pronounce it very differently than across the Atlantic. Let's hear it. So we pronounce it Desmos. I think you guys pronounce it Desmos. <laughs> yes. But maybe you folks have it right because we're not from California either. So, uh, you know, maybe we're wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, and no, I checked with the guys and they were like, nah, nah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, no, I. Um, we'll never know. Yeah, keep, so I, keep on rocking it over well, there. They'll yeah, never that's know. it. That's it. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I started um, uh, yeah, playing around with this and um, showing teachers how to use it. So this computation layer, I, I was just like, man, more teachers need to know how easy this is to use. Um, it's a really simple coding language. But I think the fact that it's like it looks like code, it just puts people off because they're like, oh, man, now I need to learn how to do that too. So part of it is now I'm like, all right, 
so I'm working with teachers to, you know, write their own. But I also am just kind of getting borderline addicted to making my own activities. I made like this. I've seen some of your activities. You really rocked the world with uh, Super Mario, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, another guy, Kurt Salisbury and I, I think Kurt's from Texas. And, yeah, we started up a website called Retro Desmos. So we just look at recreating retro arcade games on Desmos and um, just having a lot of fun. So, yeah, no, just having a lot of fun in that space and really enjoying just learning new stuff. I think, in essence, that's what I enjoy most. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, listen, John, we've held you up. Uh, you were at, I think, 10 o'clock when we started your time. It's now somewhere close to 11 o'clock and on a Saturday night, nonetheless. So we were chatting and joking before the episode began that, you know, this is exactly what math geeks do uh, do on their weekends, right? So John and yeah, I see are next up. Saturday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're up real early today because we want to geek out on math. You're up real late and super <laughs> cool. What we want to know and what we want to share with our audience is where can they find more from John Rowe? Uh, feel free to you know share out any links, uh, social media handles, and we'll include them all in the show notes for the episode so that the Math Moment Maker community can benefit and learn more about you and all the great things that you're sharing. Yep, cool. So my Twitter handle is at Mr. That's Mr. with M-R, John Rowe. So that's at M-R-J-O-H-N-R-O-W-E. And then my blog or website, which is where I put, you know, pretty much anything. Yes, so that is Mr. So mrrow.com. So mrrowe.com. And if you want that ebook, it's that same website except forward slash book. You can also find it on Apple Books as well. Awesome stuff. We will definitely link all those up in the show notes. Mr. Rowe, we are so, so thrilled to have you on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We appreciate all you do for the math community. We want to now allow you to head to bed, my friend. So thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again in the near future. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. It's been so nice. We want to thank John again for spending time with us to share his insights with you, the Math Moment Maker community from all the way across the other side of the world in Australia. As always, how will you reflect on what you've heard from this episode? Have you written ideas down, drawn the sketch note, sent out a tweet, called a colleague? Be sure to engage in some form of reflection to ensure that the learning sticks. Also, the Make Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you another giveaway, this time with Whitebook, our source for Whitebook flip charts. That's right. You can easily post these whiteboards anywhere in your room and bring them with you so you can engage in vertical non-permanent surface work, just like Peter Lildehall's research suggests. Whitebook is offering you, the Math Moment Maker community, the chance to win one of five flip chart packs plus a special 50% off discount on all flip chart packs for everyone who enters the giveaway. You can get in on this giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, August 28th. 2019. Listening after Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. No sweat. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about the current giveaway we have running. 
Don't miss out. Dive in at makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. In order to ensure you don't miss out on any new episodes, go ahead, pull the phone out of your pocket, open up your podcast app and hit that subscribe button. Do it in iTunes, Spotify, Google Play or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, share this podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweet us your biggest takeaway by tagging at MakeMathMoments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 37. Again, that is MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 37. We release a new episode every Monday morning. Keep an eye out for our next episode. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.